We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message. They will return your call. 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. And don't forget about the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can ask a question there via the listener inquiry button and listen to old archive shows as well. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all. Good morning, Scott. Thank you. Invest like a pension. What yes. does that mean? Well, you know what? People like we're all twice. pensions? Yeah, you know what? Yeah, you know, you got your RSPs, and really your RSP is a pension. Yeah. You just happen to control it yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how I would suggest somewhat haphazard a lot of people invest their money. Mm-hmm. They get to the RSP time, and they simply throw it in. There are some packaged ones through group plans, mm-hmm. so they'll often look at the day you retire. So they're like time-dated funds. Mm-hmm. And or and so you say, okay, I'm going to retire 2030, and they'll invest as, to that point. Yeah. And, and they'll change the mix as you get older. Right. But, you know, you look at the pensions, they give you a pretty good idea what a pretty a mix, a good mix of investments would be. Mm-hmm. And your RSP could be invested similar to this. So I looked at a few different ones. And Omer's, big one, Ontario Municipal Employees Pension, easy for me to say, um, is fixed income. Fixed income, first of all, things that pay interest. Mm-hmm. Government bonds, um, mortgages. Um, there's a f- bunch of different type of bonds, uh, corporate bonds and provincial bonds. Anyway, Omers would have, a b- currently, as of the last statement I looked at, had 28% in fixed income. And then they have these things called inflation-linked bonds. And they're floating rates. So if interest rates rise, mm-hmm. they, actually go, they actually do better in inflationary right. times. And they have 5% in those types of bonds. So there's 33% in fixed income, okay, in bonds. Um, I also looked at the teachers fund, and they also have 40% in fixed income. Mm-hmm. Okay, and again, fixed incomes, they had a lot in um, inflation-like bonds. They had 17% inflation-like bonds. Um, and we also, I know we have a floating rate bond fund, exact same kind of idea, mm-hmm. okay? And I looked at our own Canada, play, uh, Canada pension plan, and they have 24% in fixed income with 5% in inflation-linked bonds. So 29% in fixed income. So right off the get-go, you say, okay, well, there's a, a good chunk. So a third, it seemed to range from anywhere from, I guess the lowest was 29%, the highest was 40% in fixed income, things that pay interest. Now, it this is your retirement, and they, they don't want a lot of volatility. Now, you will get less return with more fixed income because... You know, and bonds currently are paying about 2 to 4%, depending on the kind of bond you're getting and, and the length of the bond. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to get the kind of 8% or 10% some of the equity funds will get, but it, what it does, it adds stability. Right. And this is your pension fund. So if you're going to be aggressive, it's usually not wise to be aggressive on your RSP. Um, be aggressive maybe in your non-registered investments, mm-hmm. okay, where you can earn capital gains. And, and again, one thing, again, is to w- be tax efficient. Well, interest is not taxed inside your, your RSP. It's, no, it's taxed the exact same where there was um, in, in stocks mm-hmm. or bonds, uh, equities, dividends, it doesn't matter. When you pull money out of RSPs, it's taxed the same. Mm-hmm. So then I looked, okay, take a look at the stock side of things. Well, in stocks, um, Omer's had 43% between public stocks, private stocks, and infrastructure. Okay, but actual stocks was 26%. Mm-hmm. Well, Canada Pension Plan had 35% between um, Canadian, foreign, and emerging markets. Now, this was the interesting th- thing about CPP. How much do you think 
they had in Canadian investments, Canadian stocks at 100%. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you say, I'm going to make a little pie, I'm going to take a sliver out of that pie, and, and this is Canadian stocks, what percentage would you guess? Half. It's a Canada pension plan. It should, you should have some kind of bias towards Canada, right? 3%. Wow. Only 3%. I did have a bias. <laughs> <laughs> you had the bias. Where did it get me? <laughs> Foreign stocks are 26%. In emerging markets, this is the funny part of this, emerging markets is almost 6%. Mm. Emerging markets is twice the amount than co- compared to Canada. So there's they have more in China, Latin America, India than they, they do in Canada. Mm-hmm. And, and, the per, and the whole pr- thinking about this isn't about trying to be a homer in terms of, oh, yeah, we're Canadian, we're going to invest there. It's trying to get the best return you can yeah. with the least amount of risk. And Canada is a fairly undiversified stock market because, you know, there's three mm-hmm. big sectors. There's the banks, there's the uh, there's resources, mm-hmm. and then there's a lot of telecoms, some pharmaceutical, weed stock right now seems to be the big one, but not as diversified and not as large. Right. It only does represent about 3% of the world. Yeah. And so Canada Pension Plan only puts 3% there. Um, Teachers Pension Fund. They also have in total uh, 38% in stocks, which foreign investments is 34%, 2% Canadian stocks. Okay. Again, the exact same thing. They don't have a lot in Canadian stocks. They have a lot more in foreign stocks. They actually didn't break down the foreign stock holdings. But the whole point here is your RSP um, we do find we have a bit of a, a home bias. Mm-hmm. And you'll see a lot of clients will have 80% Canadian equities in their RSP. Meanwhile, the pensions aren't doing that. Right. So uh, they must know something. Mm-hmm. So then you look at, there's this infrastructure, which, uh, you know, when you're looking at this, a lot of debt normally or owning infrastructure. And w- as an investor, we have an infrastructure fund, but... I would suggest most people aren't in infrastructure, mm-hmm. okay? Pensions are a big one in there. And there's 17% in OMERS, there's 8% in Canada Pension Plan, and there's 10% in the Teachers Fund in infrastructure. Uh, real estate, that's another big one. And uh, 24% of OMERS is in real estate, mm. okay? And that fund did about 11% last year. Yeah. So even though it has a third of the money in bonds, the real estate section did really well last it'll be year. It'll be interesting to see how that does the next year. Yeah, and again, this isn't uh, housing, okay? It is commercial real estate. But again, uh, it's been a great run for real estate of late. Mm -hmm. And Teachers Fund has 14% real estate. And Canada Pension Plan has about 11% real estate. So, it and and again, Andy and I have always recommend having a a, a sliver, you know, generally speaking, about 5% in real estate. Um, It could be foreign real estate, and we also have a real property fund. But the point is, is is really run your RSP like a pension. And there's lots of ways we can do it. We can do it on a hand-picked basis where we create your own portfolio and, and makes, okay, on your fixed income side, we're going to have Canadian bonds, we're going to have foreign bonds, we're going um, to have floating rate bonds and high-yield bonds, mortgages, and we're going to have some in real estate. So there's your fixed income. And we can do that also, and we always recommend it, it just depends how much, how conservative you want to be. If you're 25 years old and you got 40 years, probably don't want a lot in fixed income. If you're 65 years old and you're using this to provide an income for the rest of your life, then you may want to look at uh, scenarios such as these three pensions. Okay, so from there you can handpick it. But we have a lot of packaged products. 
And one, one I particularly like is our iProfile. An iProfile is a packaged product, meaning you pick a set, say seven or eight portfolios. And what's really cool about it is say under the Canadian section, let's say you have a, um, and as, as an example here, you have a moderate investment with 30% fixed income, 31% Canadian equities, 19% in US, 3% emerging markets, and 17% in international. That does kind of rhyme with some of these pensions. Having said that, there's still a lot more in Canada mm -hmm. than these pensions would have. It does add to being a slightly more conservative being in Canada because you don't have the currency risk of our dollar going up and down. But anyway, there's a perfect example. So it's a fixed portfolio and you're going to get whatever return that portfolio gets. So break it down further. It sounds pretty simple. It's just, you know, you got your fixed income, you got Canadian equity, US, emerging markets and, and international. There's five different areas. Well, what they do from there, they break it down. There's, a, there's quite a science to it. So you have your Canadian portion mm -hmm. and your Canadian portion has is broken down into four areas. You have large cap. So these are large Canadian companies um, that have been around. Large cap stands for large capitalization companies. Um, value. So large cap value. And those uh, bank is a very good um, example of a value company. Something that's been around for a long time, pays dividends. It's got a track record. It's fairly predictable. Mm -hmm. Okay. So a value company, that's, that's kind of the description. We also, in this uh, iProfile Canadian equity, has 25% in Canadian large cap growth. Well, growth companies are very different. You're trying to predict how well they'll do. What's the future potential of this company? Um, you know, how did Netflix do in the last 30 years? No idea. Hasn't mm. been around for 30 years. Yeah. You know, how's weed stock going to do in the last 30 years? There hasn't been any weed stock in the last 30 years. So those would be two examples of a growth, possibly speculative, but these are large cap growth. So large companies that are in growth. Small cap, 10% small cap. So that's smaller companies, small capitalization companies. They have a different, I always call it a heartbeat line. So when you see the uh, the charts, their, their, their line is very different than the large cap line. So you want to add small companies into your portfolio. And then there's a core equity, which is 35%. And basically that can be in anything. It can be, it's more of a blend. So you break that down, you got four different sectors in C Canada. Well, you've also got four different managers. You got Jaroslawski Fraser running some. You got Lakedon Investment Managers running some. You got Investors Group running part of that. You got Tora Torn Asset Management. Some of these are institutional managers. Jaroslawski Fraser has run some of the Teachers Fund in the past. So going back to run like a, a pension plan, well, you actually got some of the pension managers in in your portfolio running your your fund. Mm. And so, as simple as it sounds, that's just the Canadian side. It's just called the Canadian Equity Income Pool. You've got four different sections, four different managers. Well, the same would hold true for the US equities, the exact same. You'd have a large cap value, large cap growth, small cap and a core, all different managers again. Um, I, then you have international. You've got half in large cap, half in small cap, and then you've got emerging markets. And so you end up with, even though there's four pools in the equity area, you end up with 11 different managers running your, running your RSP. On the fixed income side, same idea. It may only call a fixed income pool. Well, there's Canadian bonds, 43%. There's high yield bonds, 24%. Global bonds, 23%. And real estate, <coughs> our real estate fund, 10%. All run, again, by different managers. Bearings and investors group are running different parts of that. Bottom line is you end up with a very good mix 
um, between Canada, U.S., international, emerging markets, and fixed income, you try to do this on your own, mm. okay? You've just hired yourself 11 different managers to look after your money, and it shows up as about five lines on your statement, but there's an exact science to this. And then, once a year, you rebalance it to get to your optimal mix again. Most people can't figure out their bundle with their cable. <laughs> Number exactly. <laughs> yeah. And this, the nice <laughs> thing is, it's the easy together. button. You hit the easy button, you put it in, That's let these true. guys do their job. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. 905-529-7165. You can call now, leave a message. They will return your call. And don't forget to check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Check out their website, andyanddon.com, all one word. And, of course, the phone lines are open. You can leave a message now at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. Leave a message and they will return your call. All right, the advantage of actively managed investments. Yeah, I'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey down the the path of comparing actively managed investments versus passively managed investments. Hmm. And actually, this is what Don just talked about is perfect for this segment because the investment that he was describing is what we would call an actively managed investment. So you have a team of professionals. In this case, he just talked about 11 different managers Mm -hmm. whose job it is is to actively make investment decisions on a daily basis about how the, what the holdings are in a portfolio in your portfolio and whether uh, a various position should be uh, removed from the portfolio if it, it, if it might be too risky or the perception is it's going to be risky going forward or what to add to the portfolio that may be an opportunity. So that's part of the active process. But there's a lot of discussion out there today and talking about the advantages of passive investments. And one category of passive investments we often hear about are ETFs. And ETF stands for an exchange-traded fund, which is a basket of stocks or investments that are a mirror of what the index would be. Right. And so the concept being that you can attain a rate of return equal to the index. So I want to just, just just talk about a little bit about why you would pick actively uh, managed investments versus what we would say the, the likely lower cost of passively managed assets and really what's in it for me, the whiff them for, uh, for you as a client. And uh, you know, there's a lot of opinions out here uh, about this topic. There's no doubt about that. But the focus tends to be really narrow and, and on the cost advantage of passive investments and, and the discussion around absolute performance versus maybe uh, multiple investment strategies. And Don talked about four different strategies, you know, looking at value type investment, growth type investment, small cap type investment, or a core or computer optimized research enhanced strategy as well. So the main, the main uh, investing strategies around the active side of the investing process is going to be around risk management. Can we reduce the risk that you're incurring or volatility? Uh, second would be tax planning. 
The third would be what we'd call environmental sustainability. So this, for some people, they might have a focus on environmentally, uh, socially responsible investing. So that might be a key and and very important to them. Number four is um, maybe something around promoting workplace equality. So investments or companies that have a high level of workplace equality. Uh, Number six, or number five, sorry, returns. And it's basically divided, you know, as to which is better, but the, the key thing on returns, and this is a mandate or um, our mantra from day one, is that past performance is never a guarantee of future performance. Yeah. And that has that's equal for both sides of the, the um, discussion here. Number six is the time horizon. How long are you going to be holding this investment? And number seven, what are your cash flow needs? Are you going to need income or various income from the investment as well? So just in terms of understanding the terminology, when we're, what we're talking about is this active versus passive. It's not necessarily equal to mutual funds versus ETFs, exchange-traded funds, but exchange-traded funds are one of those categories of passive investments. So if you um, if you think about it, it uh, the, 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 the concept around this, and if I give you an example, if you're creating a, a portfolio and, and you're assembling investments inside it, these are basically what you're doing, but in two different uh, two different ways of doing it. And in uh, in our days, you know, we think about music, and we used to get music on compact discs. Mm. We used to get music uh, through cassette tapes. I've got a whole bunch of LPs, <laughs> the long play record. Um, the ca- and, and obviously know that turntable that comes yeah, back. That's right, yeah. and it's everybody loves them now, right? Yeah. But and and a digital music library. So a digital music library. These are all different packages or ways of compiling the information or the things inside of it, right? Mm-hmm. In this case, it's music. Active investments and passive investments are just a a, a, a way to accumulate a, an investment inside of a package. Right. Okay, so that's kind of what we're trying to compare, and the differences and advantages and disadvantages. Now, when it comes to passive versus active, there are different legal structures and some structural characteristics that make things different. That means it might be easier to buy or sell something. Uh, there's different reporting requirements. You might have different liquidity issues in terms of being able to get your at your money when you need it. But um, I'm going to, so let's sort of pull, pull apart those uh, six different, seven different items I talked about. And we'll start with, with risk management. In the risk management uh, category as, as a sort of strategy, under the active investment plan, there's a lot of flexibility to protect a client's wealth because, uh, and this is through all market cycles. And what we've seen is particularly during down markets. And the reason is, is that an active investor manager, investment manager can avoid sort of an over-concentration in a certain area or over-concentration in a sector, which might end up happening, or even a region, a certain part of the country or the world. And that can happen in under the passive side. One of the issues around risk management is that there tends to be an increased exposure uh, to those sort of performance-crushing returns during a decline in the market. So we tend to see a big drop in, in terms of the passive side, whereas the active side tends to do a little better at controlling the downside. Uh, also, too, the active side has they can hedge their currencies. So Don was talking about that earlier. You know, if you're holding investments in Canadian dollars or you're holding investments outside of Canada, the impact of the currency changing. And... Um, and an active manager can retain cash. Having cash in your portfolio 
is like extra space in your cassette or extra space in your on your CD to add more things if you want. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, and in this case, having that cash means that an active manager is not going to be forced to sell something or liquidate a position in order to raise money. So if you want your money back and there isn't cash available, I have to sell something inside that investment portfolio. If it's a bad time to sell it, I don't have any choice. Mm -hmm. We have to sell it. We have to take the loss. You have to get your money. So uh, there's obviously, we're not forced to liquidate. And the other thing an active manager has is there's buying opportunities. So, you know, you can certainly... um, you know, you can find something at a low cost. You can add or increase or enhance the position if you found an opportunity to do that. Whereas an ETF, that passive side of it, it's going to be forced to buy or sell an investment so that it maintains the weighting of that right. position in the index. Uh, okay, let's talk about returns. Well, after-tax returns are the key thing here. So, you, you know, it's, it's fine to talk about the gross return, but what's your real return after you pay taxes on it? Right. What do you actually keep? And um, in a passive strategy, there's really no no planning around ta- uh, on the tax planning side. It is what it is. Uh, in the active management side, we can they can do something which they call loss harvesting. So if there is an area or one particular sector or company that has lost money, they can use that loss to offset gains in other positions, therefore reducing the tax burden in the active side. Um, Now, under the next area, which is we'll call it the ESG, the Environmental, Social, and Governance category, uh, there's lots of options on the active side. You can be very targeted in terms of the types of investments you want to have that fit your sense of concern over the environment, over social issues, over the governance, whether it's at a, at a country level political system or whether it's just the way a company is being run. Mm-hmm. You might not like the way Uber is management is, yeah. is handling things right now and you don't want to be involved in them. But um, on the passive side, they basically rely on a formula to, to, base, to define what those investable assets might be, what type of companies they could invest in. And then there's very little flexibility to make any discretionary judgment, something like the Weinstein Group, you know, where, where he's gone off the rails. Yeah. Yeah. And do you want to own that company? Right. If that's something that's important to you, you don't really have a choice under the, uh, under the passive side, right. right? Whereas an active manager could decide we're getting out of that right away. Um, the next area which is key is the behavioral advantages. And this comes down to sort of the market timing concept. And uh, I love this quote, you know, this is the old concept, you know, buy low, sell high, right? And uh, this is something I was reading in this research piece, but it said, in aggregate, investors tend to buy high and sell low. Many investors, after selling low and feeling burned, (laughs) resist re-engaging with the market until long after a recovery has taken hold and much of the potential return is passed. And they buy again at high. That's right. Hurt it's, a vicious, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah, you know, you're, you're burned. Yeah. Emotion. You're burned by it. You're burned by it. I don't want to be involved in it. I'm staying out of it. And then when the time you, the burn dissipates, it's already gone up in value, right? So we know on the, on the uh, because the active side has less volatility, that type of investment has less volatility, it reduces that fear factor and therefore the sense of selling low or the, the possibility of selling low. And because we have less concentration in a sector, that might also help reduce the fear factor and again, prevent people from selling low. 
So the purpose is to sort of decrease the panic and therefore you're going to be less likely to sell. So one of the studies that uh, I read about this is the, the Dalbar out of Boston, Dalbar organization, which has been studying investor behavior for years. And uh, they did a study recently, last March, March 2017, called the Active Versus Passive Investor Return. And the key, a couple of the key messages, number one is that the average investor in active funds outperforms their passive counterpart. Let me say that again. Key, key finding, the average investor in active funds outperformed their passive counterparts. And why did, that, why did that happen? And as they pulled apart their research, they knew that the active investors who were participating in a mutual fund or an investment with active management, they knew that there were professionals that were watching over the product. And they knew that, and therefore they were less inclined to sort of make a, a rash decision about getting out of it. Mm-hmm. They felt they were being, it's being watched. It's being yeah. taken care of. Whereas the passive group had a much higher increase of panic over this because they felt there was no one watching out mm-hmm. and they had to be able to take over and, and make control, take control of this. So the, the key, another key takeaway from the Dalbar study of 2017 says that returns are more dependent on investor behavior than they are on fund performance. Mm-hmm. And that's been true for the last 25 years mm-hmm. that we've been oh, talking about Dalbar. Um, Human nature is not to make money. We are wired to lose money. <laughs> I know. So the next area is the performance records. So let's compare the rates of returns of these active managers versus the passive managers. And um, so the first thing is, how do they describe or how do you define rate of return for these different types of investments? And really, this the sort of general way of doing this is they take all investors, everybody together, uh, they all make up the market, right? We all, we're all buying and selling stocks at different times. We make up the market. Therefore, the market return equals the average investor return. So whatever the market return is equals the average investor return. And so therefore, if active managers have a higher cost, then their average net return must be lower than the market return. Mm-hmm. So that's the concept behind it. And, and so if we were to compare though, how that doesn't really make sense when you bear out the facts is that if you took two investors and one of them had uh, lots of money in the market, so they have a million dollar portfolio and they're aggressively investing in growth stocks, and then you took a second investor who had just 50 grand of investments and they were in low risk, lower risk dividend stocks. If you mush them together to create an average return, that's not going to equal the market return, right? Yeah. Everybody's different because they have different approaches to this. So it's, that part is very difficult um, to describe. And the other thing is that uh, all the active investments in mutual funds for sure are always reporting performance net of fees. So all the fees are taken into account. Whereas in an ETF, the performance does not include the fees to buy and sell, and that's often left out of the equation as well. So um, so many of the mutual funds are, are, are mostly positive. In the, and this was done in a 2009 study by Martin Kremers. And what he found is that, that a lot of mutual funds are passive. In other words, you're paying for an active manager but a lot of them are just mirroring what's going on in the index, but yeah. just a little bit, a little bit more one year, a little bit less. For all intents and purposes, they're passive mutual fund investments that are 
under the active area. So when you strip out those ones that are being passive and you look at truly active managers, the study by Martin Kremens uh, discovered that active mutual fund managers, these are ones that take positions that deviate from the benchmark, uh, outperform all outperform both the benchmark before and after fees. So those ones that are actively managing and moving money are always been beating the benchmark yeah. before and after fees. And, um, and so that's an important finding too. The final thing sort of going forward is the tide turning, maybe. And recently we've seen some of this passive investing has done well from a performance standpoint. Um, but we're in an environment now with higher interest rates and that sort of widens the difference between winners and losers. And I'll tell you why, basically, because when we had low interest rate environment, those weaker companies, they were able to sort of keep themselves alive and afloat because they could access cheaper financing. Mm -hmm. So it was easy to get money, keep your business going, even though you were struggling in time. Number two, we're seeing rapid technology change and, uh, in a low growth environment, there's sort of a winner take all. And this, uh, this was coined the, the second machine age. And U.S. companies today, when they looked at the total income from the top 100 companies in the U.S., in 1975, 49% of the U.S., the total company income came from those top 100 companies, 1975. Mm. 20 years later, 1995, only 53%. Mm. So, I mean, went up to 53%. So that's only a 4% difference. In 2015, of the top 100 U.S. companies, 84% of the total income is coming from them. So we think of something we call the FANG stocks, which is Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, Hmm. that are really big, big companies today whose concentration of the total income in the market is enormous. So we've got a couple more areas just to cover off on this discussion, ETFs and passive. We'll we'll finish that up when we come back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. 7165. And you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question at andyanddon.com. That's their website, andyanddon.com. We're talking about the advantage of actively managed investments. Yeah. And I just want to carry on our discussion. We're sort of looking at going forward, the difference between active investment and passive investing, mutual funds, say, versus ETFs. And what is what is happening now? And the tide turning a little bit more towards active investing, I think, as the favored uh, strategy. And a couple more areas of of issue, why that's true. And uh, Dr. Jeremy Siegel, who's the uh, professor emeritus at the uh, Wharton School of Business, identified that the increased use of passive investments may be sowing the seeds for its own underperformance. And the reason he identified that was that passive investing leads companies that are entering into the market to be inflated in price because these ETFs have to mirror the index. Mm. So if a company now mm. comes into an index, they have to buy it. Right. And that, art, that buying of it increases its price. And so often when a, when a company enters the index, that increasing price tends to then fall off after the initial burst. So you tend to see them basically are buying high as that enters the index, um, whereas the uh, active investor 
has actually now been taking advantage of this process and using an arbitrage strategy, knowing that the index funds have to buy these. Mm -hmm. So they're actually doing the opposite. They're waiting for them to short and they can make a a, Mm -hmm. a spread on the difference. And finally, IPOs. IPOs are something called initial public offerings. And this is when a a new company comes to uh, the market to become a public company. Mm-hmm. Now, companies are becoming, um, like Uber is an example, where it's it's um, it's growing internally as a private company and building itself in its market share and its dominance and then coming to the market as a public company. And um, so an active manager can buy into these private corporations before they become listed on the market, whereas an ETF cannot do that. And uh, so in summary, there's room for both. There's no doubt about it. But uh, I like this final quote. It said, while passive investing may offer a degree of protection against the risk of underperforming a benchmark, it also guarantees the surrender of any possibility of outperforming it. Enough can't, said. Yeah. Drop be, the mic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't beat the index when you're uh, when you're actually mirroring the index. Less fees, so it's it's actually guaranteeing that you can't. But on on a, on a total switch here, um, we're we're heading into March break, and you know a lot of people may be heading to Florida or somewhere warm, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, I thought it'd be a good chance to say that there's a lot of still talk about people buying a place down south and what's the best way, what's a tax smart snowboard do, uh, sorry, snowbird do. Mm. And uh, really a Canadian is always looked upon like three P's. It's they play hockey, mm. they're polite <laughs> and they pay a ton of income tax. <laughs> 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 and so you, so really it's not a problem in buying these. So buying real estate in general is easy to do. It's selling it mm. or what happens if you pass on? and you die and you leave it. And this is where buying a foreign property becomes an issue. Um, it's buying it, enjoying it, that's great, everything, and that's what all the commercials and the, and the salespeople are talking about. But they never talk about, well, how do you get rid of it or how does it work through, through probate? And particularly, so if you bought a place in Florida, for example, it would be tied up for eight to 12 months in probate. You'd have to, you have court costs, you have to put it in the newspaper that uh, there's been a, a death. You're, you have to file for fees. The lawyer can cost three why to four. Why do you have to tell the person, why do you put that in the newspaper that someone's died? Uh, just, just to let them know. Just if there's any outsettled claims, uh, unsettled yeah. claims, you can come and. Basically, yeah. and again, uh, even beneficiaries, and it's yeah. maybe there's an ownership That's, stake. Yeah. There's are, you, are you getting nervous or? No, no, no. no. <laughs> Okay. It, it, it just might explain why, you know, so many people read the obituary. Ah, that's oh, right. There's a good point there, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, pr- and then probate tax. So it's just a long drawn out process of owning property. And so, you know, one of the first things people often do is say, I'll just put in joint names. That's easy. I'll just put it my, my you know, Jane owns it and, her, and he j- puts in joint name with her husband, Bob. Well, that only defers it. So yes, it does avoid probate for one person. So whoever dies first... No problem. Mm-hmm. But then the second ownership upon their, that person's death, you're right back to where you started again. Okay? So then people will say, well, I'm going to get smart. I'll put it in a corporation. Corporations never die. It avoids probate. And very true. Not recommended, though, because you have to file an annual report every year with both the f- provincial and the Florida governments. Mm. Okay? And this is a kicker here, which I wasn't aware of. You have to add annual rental income even if it's not rented and you got to pay tax on it because it, it could have been rented. Mm. So, so you're not even getting money 
And it says, well, as a corporation owns it, it's got to be used for some kind of an investment purpose. It's a business. It's yeah. a business. Yeah. yeah. And therefore, it should be getting rental income. And if you didn't get it, well, that's your fault. You're not a very good businessman. And we're going to deem you income. Yeah. And you got to pay tax on it. So there goes that idea. Um, the smart snowboard, uh, snowbird goes, and it's cross-border trust and a CBT. And that's what they would open. So Jane, in this case, is the trustee and the beneficiary of the cross-border trust. She owns a cross-border trust, which then in turn owns the condo. Well, if Jane dies, there's no probate because the trust doesn't die. And then her husband or partner takes over the trust, okay? And upon that person's death, the property goes to the kids who then own the property inside the cross-border trust. There's no annual filings for this. You don't have to do filings such as a corporation every year. And... And also, there's no double taxation, and there's no probate. This is a win-win-win. Um, so you look at options of ownership down there. Um, certainly, the cross-border trust is the one you should be talking to your lawyer about. Um, but then you got to look at, there was another way of avoiding all this, is you just don't own, you rent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and point. with that, there's no worries. Um, but again, my dad is a perfect example. He owns. He has a great, uh, there's a lifestyle there. There's a lot of friends there. And my in-laws, they rent. Mm. You have no worries. And they also have a lot of friends there. So mm. to each your own. But uh, if you are going to own, do consider the cross-border trust. We are planning our financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Check out the website, andyanddon.com. That's all one word, andyanddon.com. You can listen to old shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Or call now and leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. Talking about double dipping. Yes. Dessert to end the show. Well, we <laughs> just got through RSP season. You're kind of getting to tax season now. And hopefully... Oh, I'm starting to cramp up here. Yeah. <laughs> there's always another season, right? And it's, it's funny. There's not much of a line between them. Everybody's kind of waiting for the receipts now to get those tax filings in. Yeah. Particularly if they put money into an RSP because they would get a refund. Well, it's always that dilemma. What do I do with that refund? I got, and also, Shay. That's I, not a dilemma for me, Don. <laughs> no. <laughs> it may not be. And there's a possibly March We're break, hoping uh, to tug at your mental strings here, <laughs> your emotional versus. <laughs> well, let's just say, Scott, which you have a couple kids. Let's just say, you know, had one child at six years old and you haven't done a thing for education mm. and you know it's going to happen some down, down the road. 11 years and. Bingo, bango, there are other, you know, Mohawk, McMaster, Queens, who knows? They're post-secondary somewhere. And it's not cheap. It's about 20,000 a year if you're living away from home. And obviously, you can save some costs if they're, you know, nearby. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, you got your head shaking there. Are they staying at a resort or something? (laughs) (laughs) Is it all-inclusive? I guess it is, isn't it? It is all-inclusive. You're right. The meal plan, it's (laughs) all-inclusive. And then you get phone calls after you graduate, and you realize it was a club because they still want money from you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. (laughs) Part of the alumni. But I was looking at, say, a 35-year-old, and he's got this dilemma. What do I do with my 10000 Well, if I put my 10000 into an RSP, and I make, say, 75000 a year, that's going to save me. I'm a 30% tax bracket. So I'm going to save $3,000 and going to get a tax refund of $3,000. I can take that $3,000 and put that into my child's RESP mm-hmm. every year for 12 years. Because actually, you, you're allowed to put $36,000 into a child's RESP, and you're going to get the full grant. 
which is $7,200 from the government, mm-hmm. which is 20% free money. There is a catch. You have to put money into it. Mm-hmm. So you have to do this. This is, honestly, I, I've been, we've been doing this for so long. It's like, what a breath of fresh air when they get to the end. It's like a speed bump when their kids go to university yeah. rather than a panic attack. Yeah. Where am I going to get the funds from? Yeah. So in this example, you put, keep putting this 10000 in, 3000 goes in the RESP. In, by the time that child hits 17 years old, at 5%, there's $50,000 of, of funds there available just from the 3000 But the government's also thrown in $1,200 every year. And that $1,200 at a 5% growth rate would have grown to another 20000 So there is $70,000 if you started when the child's six years old waiting for university. Now... There's seven-eighths of it if they, if they live away from home, yeah. part-time jobs, whatever. Um, and, and certainly there'll be more costs because, you know, we, there's inflation between now and then. But this is generally, this would take care of probably three out of the four years. Yeah, you know what I noticed too? A lot of times now having seen those kids that have reached 17 or are now at post-secondary school, you've got a $70,000 pot of money at the beginning, but you don't need it all at once. Yeah, that's good So point. the money's yeah. still invested. Yeah, and point. for another four years, sometimes five years, depending on whether it's a co-op program or the length. Of, and so now that actually can extend out. And I've seen that that, that could last even the full full four years all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, great point. I've had, uh, when, when they do start going to university, depending on how they, you know, their expenses, a lot of them actually come out with money. Yeah. That's right. And so what we've been doing with Did that Did they give money, that back to mom and dad? Well, uh, usually the mom and dad have already kind of <laughs> had question. this away, but we, we've taken this, the child's money and we put that in their tax-free savings account. Mm. We try to address that early mm-hmm. because we want to untie it from the government. Yeah, it's good we idea. want to put that into funds that can grow tax-free and it's no longer tied to having to attend university anymore. So you don't have to lose any of that grant money if they stop attending. So you've got all this money in TFSA so that can help for the first car, down payment on a house, et cetera. It never hurts. And basically you've got $23,000 because of you've done this just through the government grant plus growth. It's absolutely incredible. And I look at how many scholarships that are out there. People are scrambling for 600 bucks of a scholarship, mm. n- never mind 20,000. Mm. Now on the RSP side, this individual being 35, he could be aggressive. And he put his 10,000 every year into an RSP. By the time that child went to university, that had already grown to 204,000, okay? So now they got 204,000, they're 47 years old. Let's say they stop. They don't even add another penny. Um, Don't know why, they've already saved, they've good savers, it's very unlikely they would stop. But just for this example, that 204,000 at 65, without adding another cent, would be worth $815,000. So now they're 65, They've got $815,000. Their kids have graduated from university thanks for this RESP. That $815,000 could now pay an income of $41,000 a year at 5%. So all this because you added $10,000 to an RSP for 12 years. That's only 120 grand. Mm -hmm. It's giving you a lifelong pension of 41,000 and you've put your kids to university. And what did you do with your tax refund, Scott? I reinvested it. Into your RESP. There you go. And and this is an example, and it's absolutely amazing, the compounding effect of money. If you follow a plan, and and a disciplined one, it does take some discipline. Of course, when you get that $3,000 check sent from the government, it's either 
direct deposit in your bank account or you get the physical check. I know most people start shaking with what can I do with this? Mm. It's a bit of a tug of war. Don, um, I know I got to give this to you and I promised I would, but <laughs> there's always a but. But you know what, to be honest, most clients, we've already worked them through this path. And if you can see the big picture, which I've just shown here, of how much this can impact your life and your kid's life, it's well worth giving that check in and reinvesting it. And I just want to say uh, a shout out to all the listeners now who are uh, hearing us at eight o'clock in the morning. Yes. Yes. If you Welcome. like our, if you like the time, send us a note just saying cheers or thumbs up. All right. Sounds good. I guess some are still asleep or uh, <laughs> going on with their day. Uh, we have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank have you, a great Scott. Week. Thanks, Scott.